and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Hannah White, Deputy Director at the IFG and this week's Deputy Presenter. An embattled leader, distracted by international affairs and struggling to deal with the cost of living crisis at home. But Emmanuel Macron still won the French presidential election. How did he do it and what does France's experience mean for the UK? We'll take a look. And then we'll turn our attention to another embattled leader, distracted by international... Uh, well, you get the idea. Yes, we're a week away now from a series of important elections across the UK. So where are the votes taking place and what's at stake? We'll speak to the IFG's local elections expert. MPs tell us that the cost of living crisis is featuring heavily on the doorstep. So what's going on? And does the government have a credible plan to deal with it? All that and more on this week's Inside Briefing. I've got a raving cast of IFG experts dropping in during the show, but I'm delighted to be joined throughout by Jim Pickard, Chief Political Correspondent at the FT. Hi, Jim. How are you? Good morning. Very well, thanks. Okay, let's start in France, where last weekend President Macron saw off the challenge of Marine Le Pen to secure a historic second term. And earlier I was joined all the way from Paris by Georgina Wright, Senior Fellow and Director of Institut Montaigne's Europe Programme and an Associate here at the IFG. Hi, Georgie. Busy times? (laughs) Quite busy. Hi, Hannah. It's so nice to speak to you. So in the end... Emmanuel Macron won quite comfortably. Did, is that what people were expecting? I, I was hearing lots of nervous comparisons with Trump's election and the Leave victory in the Brexit referendum. People were worried there might be an upset. Mm. So it's quite interesting. I think about sort of five weeks before the actual first vote, because the presidential election, you've got a first vote where lots of candidates run and then the two candidates with the most votes go to a second round. Well, before the first round, everyone just you know thought Macron's going to win. There's no problem. He doesn't really appear to be campaigning all that much. He thinks it's in the bag. And then sort of a week before, you could see the polls narrowing and this real sense that goodness, maybe he won't make it to the second round. Anyway, he did. And then we really saw him go out in the streets, campaign, go all across, you know, travel all across France, try and convince voters to to turn out and vote for him. And in the end, he did he did secure a sort of comfortable 58% um, majority. But there are questions as to how many people sort of voted for him out of conviction or simply to prevent the far right from getting into power. And so there is a sense that, yes, he, he did win a second term, but it wasn't met with great enthusiasm. So 58%, that's less than he got last time. Does that make his job a whole lot more difficult in his second term? Well, yes and no. It depends if he secures a parliamentary majority or at least a majority in the parliamentary elections in June that will support his mandate. So there's a lot of confusion internationally, which is, you know, what does the president do? And then what does the prime minister do? Well, in the sense, the president can pretty much do everything if he manages to have a majority in parliament that will support what he wants to do. And so uh, last time in 2017, his party, which sort of really came out of nowhere, um, got a huge majority um, in the parliamentary elections, which basically gave him, you know, the sort of mandate, a strong popular mandate to do whatever he liked. There are questions here about whether he will be able to secure that majority. If he doesn't, then it will make it much more difficult for him to do lots of things like passing, you know, difficult pensions reforms or transport, um, or even actually some aspects of foreign policy. Yes, because that, that's sort of some of the domestic things he wants to try and do. What does his victory mean now for the EU? 
I think for the EU, um, it's pretty much the same as what we've seen over the past uh, five years, in the sense that if you look at all the EU leaders, Macron was the one who never had, you know, and was never short on ideas. He put forward 60 proposals in 2017. Many of them have seen, uh, you know, the start of reflections in the EU. Think about taxing digital giants or tackling decarbonisation or even thinking about EU defence. I mean, these are all things that Macron was really heavily pushing. I suspect that now he'll want to continue, carry on uh, that uh, all those proposals through. He will want to go further and faster than he did before. He'll want to tackle tricky discussions like reforming the Eurozone or even tackling freedom of movement, uh, thinking about how you can strengthen the EU's external borders. So there are a number of things that he'll want to do more of. And I think actually he might be able to do that regardless of whether he gets a majority in Parliament. It's going to be much more difficult for him on the domestic side of things if he fails to get the majority he needs. That's really interesting. And what what do you think his victory means for the UK? I mean, presumably number 10 will have breathed a sigh of relief, but it's not as though Macron and and Johnson are, are natural allies, is it? I mean... I think strengthening sort of UK-France uh, ties is is not a priority in France. That doesn't mean it's not important. I mean, they're the two largest military powers in Europe. They both have a seat on the UN Security Council. They're both nuclear powers. And this really matters when we're thinking about uh, nuclear proliferation in the context of the war in Ukraine, but also nuclear power. So, And I also think they sort of share many of the same instincts, even if they don't always come to the same you know, policy solutions or policy proposals. But I think think there's an, there are a number of things that are making this relationship quite complicated. The one which you, you know you pointed to is the personal relationship between Macron and Johnson, which is good, but it's not great. Um, I think Brexit frames a lot of the relationship still. I mean, even if uh, you know France was very keen, um, think back to 2017, 2018 to kind of separate Brexit from the bilateral relationship. The sort of toxicity, the acrimony bled into that bilateral relationship, um, and then you. Simply Simply the reality that sort of Franco-British relations are important, but not a priority. It's much more about Germany. It's much more about strengthening the EU. Um, so I think there's going to have to be a little work done on, on patching up their personal ties, but also just sort of strengthening ties across government, because it's not just about the personal relations between the two leaders. It's very much about civil society, think tanks, um, but also, you know, across uh, different ministries as well. And do you think there are lessons for UK politicians in how Macron won? Or is it is it really just more about him as an individual? Um, I think he's... Well, one of the things, probably not a lesson, not a takeaway, is is don't campaign too late because um, <laughs> he really sort of two weeks before the first round really um, got his act together and started campaigning. And a lot of people just thought... This is someone, this is a president who who is, is assuming he will get a second term rather than sort of a candidate who's trying to convince the French that he deserves a second term. So acting as a president and not as a candidate. And I think that is probably one of the lessons not to take away. On the other things, I think he's a very... Um, good communicator and in a sense he's not afraid to say when things go wrong Um, and so even if he does divide French society I mean that 
you know, I, I can think back to Sarkozy, who really divided French society as well. But the, Macron seems to really rub people up the wrong way. People either love him or they absolutely hate him. But one of the things that is absolutely clear and it came out in that big debate between him and and Marine Le Pen was the fact that he is able to communicate what can seem very complicated simply. And by doing that, sort of bringing people on board with him. So I think work on your communication is essential. Well, that's not something that Boris Johnson is generally uh, struggles with, I think. Um, obviously, Macron can't stand again. Um, and in, in, in the presidential election, at least the traditional French parties have performed pretty badly. What's going to happen five years from now? Can we ask you to gaze into your crystal ball? Yeah, I mean, a lot of it depends. There is this question about whether the centre can survive without Macron. Um, And, you know, one of my key takeaways from this last presidential election has been sort of how personified the presidential election has become. In a sense, it's no longer about the party, uh, you know, their their sort of party and the ideology of the party. Um, It's much more about the candidate themselves and, you know, what they're proposing, whether they personify France, whether they have state uh, like qualities. So I think that's it's much more about that. But if you look at the parliamentary elections and the regional local elections, then it's much more about the party. Um, And so in a sense, I think we can talk about a collapse of the, you know, support for the mainstream traditional centre-left and centre-right in the presidential election. But I think it's too soon to talk about the collapse in the in the parliamentary election. So we'll have to see. Um, and then there's the question of what happens to the extremes. So the hard left candidate Jean-Luc Mélenchon, you know, securing 22% of the vote in the presidential election um, and saying, I am the solution to the, to the, you know, to the socialist cause. So vote for me. Um, and there's an interesting question about whether you will see sort of a new kind, kind of centre left or, 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 you know, hard left party emerge and, and how, Uh, They are able to secure seats, more seats at all levels uh, of government. And then, of course, the continuing strengthening of the of the far right. And what was interesting in this election was to see how more of a centrist and moderate candidate Marine Le Pen seemed. And that's partly because there was another far right candidate running in this election, Um, but also because she become much better communicator. She nuanced what she was saying. For example, she was no longer advocating to leave the EU, uh, but simply try and change the EU from the inside. And the question is, what happens to her party? Will they think we need to kind of have a new name, a new party? And if that is the case, will they be able to galvanise even more votes that will see them not only through to the second round, but also win the Elysee? So I think it, it, not, it doesn't only depend on what Macron does and whether his party can survive, but also how the other parties position themselves. So it's going to be a really interesting five years. That's really fascinating. Thank you, Georgie. And I think we're at least going to have to have you back for your analysis after the parliamentary elections. Anytime. So I'd love to. <laughs> so great to hear from you. Thanks. Okay, let's turn from the French elections to a whole series of votes coming up across the UK. Local elections don't get the same coverage as a general election, but they do matter. And the upcoming votes in Northern Ireland could have huge consequences. So what's going on and what's at stake? We're joined now by Akash Pound, IFG Senior Fellow and our expert on all governments local and devolved. Hi, Akash. Hi, Hannah. So can you remind us what votes are taking place and where? Yes, so there are quite an interesting set 
elections taking place in in all four parts of the UK. Um, I mean, first of all, as as you mentioned, there is the election to the Northern Ireland Assembly, so all 90 seats. That could be a very interesting one to watch. There could be a, a, a shift in the balance of power between the main parties there, which which could have ramifications for how power sharing between unionists and nationalists operates, for example. Um, so that's definitely a big one. Um, and then all across Great Britain, uh, we have uh, local elections taking place. So in Scotland and Wales, all councillors are up for election in the uh, 32 local authorities in Scotland and the 22 local authorities in Wales. So that's a, a total of uh, 2,500 or so councillors um, being fought for across those two nations. Um, in England, we have around four and a half thousand councillors up for grabs. Um, those are disproportionately concentrated in London, where we have all out elections across the 32 London boroughs. Um, and then also there's elections in quite a lot of uh, metropolitan boroughs in other parts of England, uh, like Manchester and and, Sheffield and and Birmingham and so on. Uh, we don't have elections in county councils this year, uh, but we do in, in various districts. Uh, we also have some mayoral elections, which we at the IFG take quite uh, an interest in. So the Metro Mayor of South Yorkshire, um, is being elected. Dan Jarvis, the incumbent, is stepping down. So we'll have a new person elected there. And then there are a few other um, local authority mayors being elected as well. And when do we expect the results to come in? Well, they'll be coming in uh, gradually over over the course of, well, at least a day and possibly into the weekend because different places will start counting at different points. So in England, I understand that about half of the councils, including uh, London, will be counting overnight. So we will start seeing results um, in the traditional way for the people who you know stay up and watch it bleary-eyed from the early hours. Um, but then in Scotland and in Wales and in the Northern Ireland Assembly election, they're not even going to start counting um, until Friday morning. So results therefore might be expected um, from sort of Friday afternoon onwards. And in Northern Ireland and indeed Scot in, in Scottish Council elections as well, um, the, the, the electoral system, the single transferable vote, um, makes the count a bit more complicated because you have to go through various uh, complicated calculations of transferring votes um, and so on between different candidates, which means that the whole process can take a bit longer. So, so, Jim, how big a deal are these votes for Boris Johnson or on the flip side, how much of an opportunity are they for Labour? So I, th I think to understand these local elections at all, you have to sort of think about where we are in the electoral cycle and where the main parties should be right now. And if you look at the run-up to 1979 or the run-up to 97 or the run-up to 2010, basically the point where you've changed a government, normally you can see that seismic shift happening in microcosm at a local level for several years. So uh, the Conservatives had already become the biggest party of local government way before 79. Labour had done the same thing in the mid-90s. And the Conservatives had done the same thing in the mid-2000s. But if you look at where we are now, even after 12 years in power, with or without the Lib Dems, the Conservatives still have a bigger presence in local government than Labour. They have about 7,000 seats. Labour have about 5,000 seats. So 
even if by some miracle uh, this magical figure of a thousand labor games turned out to be true and not just uh, exploitation management by CCHQ, which is what I suspect it is, even if they did gain a thousand seats, they are still a thousand seats behind the Tories. So it, if you think of it as a kind of incremental step for them, that, that is the best that it can be. And I think what we'll actually see on the day is very much a game of two halves with Labour doing quite well in places like London, but also the Conservatives making a few gains in kind of catch-up red wall areas such as the West Midlands and such as North East England. So even if Labour gain, I don't know, 300, 400, 500 seats, we have to think of it in the perspective of where they ought to be if they want to win the next general election, which is much further ahead. That's a really important perspective. I, I think that's really interesting. And you travelled to Dudley for the FT um, to sort of take the temperature on the ground. What was your takeaway from that? I did, and I've never been to, to Dudley. I'm, I'm from the North Yorkshire Moors. Um, Dudley was new to me. It's got a castle, it's got a zoo. I didn't have time to go to the zoo, but I spent a lot of time in the market <laughs> chatting to people. And the thing you never read in a newspaper Vox Pop type piece is the sheer weight of people who basically say they're not interested in politics and they don't want to talk to you. And I hope this isn't just a reflection of my lack of personal charm. There, there were so many <laughs> people there who would just <clears throat> basically be gone. The lot of you would just don't care. They're really fed up. And you have to, you basically, I had to talk to about 50 people to get about 10 people who would talk at reasonable length to me. And I think the thing I came away with from the people who were happy to talk was that um, Partygate is a thing. It's not a media invention. It's not a Westminster bubble confection. It is something that people do raise again and again and again. And they use the phrase Partygate and they're very hacked off. And they, they might have thought Boris Joseph Johnson to be kind of a, a charming joker a few years ago. Now they increasingly think that he's a, a, a relatively incompetent joker to some extent. That doesn't mean that they kind of hate him, but there were quite a few people I spoke to who were Brexit supporters, who had been Labour or floating voters, and they turned to the Tories around the time of Brexit and beyond out of frustration. And now they were reconsidering their vote. But the thing that I want to make really clear is that the idea that there's some kind of magnetic lure for Keir Starmer and his Labour Party right now is, is for the birds. There's no sense of any kind of draw from Labour. You don't get any sense of excitement about Keir Starmer. You find some people who think that he's competent. You find people who think he's an improvement on his predecessor, Jeremy Corbyn. But uh, we're not in the kind of mid-90s situation where people did did feel that kind of magnetic attraction to a Labour Party in the ascendant. So we almost need to look separately at the uh, implications of the outcome <laughs> of, of the votes uh, for what they tell us about the Tories and what they tell us about, about Labour. It's always really, really hard on picking local elections. It's really, really difficult because people vote on any number of issues and turnout is lower than you get in a general election and people can be voting on anything from local bin collections to local scandals among councillors um you know there, there were people there was a lot of chat in dudley about local issues such as the new metro line coming or the new dudley university campus or question marks over why the tory council had sent nine councillors to mitten which is the very lovely uh, property conflab in Cannes in the south of France, which I myself have been to quite a few times. 
Um, the, the Tory leader there said that was to drum up regeneration money for the town. So people could be voting on Ukraine, they could be voting on cost of living crisis. That did come up quite a lot when I was there. They could be voting on Partygate. And we, the experts in inverted commas, always struggle to work out what's what. And someone in, in the, high up in the Conservative Party was reminding me that last year they'd been braced for a thousand losses and they ended up getting 330 gains. It's really hard to predict. Um, you only have to look back at the um, 2017 local elections where you had a situation where the Conservatives made humongous gains and then they crashed and burned in the, the general election, which was literally a month later, just to see how forecasting and stuff is, is a mug's game. But, you know, obvi- obviously it is important in the scheme of things. And I think if, if Labour makes, let's say, 500 gains, I, th- I think... It, it means Keir Starmer is still totally assured in his position at the moment as leader. You know, he's just several points ahead in the polls. There's no sense of mutiny in the ranks. And I, I've been covering the Labour Party for something crazy like 14 years. And, and this is the only time I've ever been in Westminster where there hasn't been plotting and people in corridors trying to knife the, the, the Labour leader. It, it feels very unusual. Um, but obviously, if they don't make any gains or they make net losses, then clearly that that kind of benign situation for Starmer could change. Yeah, that could get those conversations going again. Akash, our colleague Alex Nice, writing for the IFG, has rightly pointed out there's a lot more going on in these elections that we should be paying attention to. Uh, He identifies five things, in fact. Can you give us the headlines briefly? Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, Alex has, has, has run some quite interesting analysis uh, that will be up on our blog for people interested in reading in more detail. Um, I mean, his first with what Jim Pickard was was just talking about, actually, I mean, he, he notes that the conservative dominance of local government in England is very unusual at this stage of the electoral cycle and contrasts very much with where the party was um, in the, the years before the 1997 election, when, of course, it, it went uh, down in a landslide defeat. So Labour does have um, quite a big gap to catch up um, if it's going to really persuade people that it's in a position to to challenge at the general election um, expected in, in a couple of years. Um, the other point he makes about that is because of the elections that are being fought this time in England, the scope for Labour gains are perhaps more limited than than in other years because four years ago Labour actually did pretty well. That was a that was a good uh, electoral year for 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 for, for Labour in London, for instance, and in lots of these other cities. So Labour are expected to make gains, and obviously the Conservatives have been doing the usual expectations management about that. But the figures may not be as large as 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 we've seen in some other years. Um, so that's one point. Uh, the second then is turning to Scotland and Wales. So again, it's important to compare what's happening now with what was going on the last time those elections were fought. And in Scotland and Wales, the local elections were last fought, not in 2018, but in 2017, five years ago, which was a very bad uh, performance for for, for, for Labour, uh, particularly in Scotland, where the Conservatives overtook Labour uh, for the first time in, I don't know how many decades. Um, so there is a bit more scope for Labour to to. to to, to regain ground there. Um, and, and ditto, I would say, in Wales, where they did quite poorly five years ago. Um, 
Thirdly, um, I mentioned earlier that we have um, a Metro mayor election in South Yorkshire. Um, so that's going to be quite an interesting test of whether that still relatively new model of, of regional governance, the Metro Mayor Combined Authority model, um, has taken root in well in the South Yorkshire region, the city region around Sheffield, Barnsley and so on. Um, so be, we expect the Labour candidate Oliver Coppard to win. It'd be a shock if he didn't, uh, replacing Dan Jarvis, who's returning full time to Westminster. But it will be interesting to keep an eye on, on turnout as an indicator of whether voters have really kind of been persuaded of the value of that of that post. Um, fourth, uh, there will be local elections in a few interesting places where the government is looking to negotiate new devolution deals. Um, and we know from past experience that, you know, local political dynamics can really make a big difference in whether devolution deals are agreed or not. So, for example, the Conservatives are hoping to make gains perhaps in Sunderland or in parts of the West Midlands where the government's looking to to conclude new devolution deals. So that could have an the results at the local level could have an impact on those negotiations. Um, and then finally, we've talked a bit about Northern Ireland already. Um, the big thing really to look out for there, uh, we would say, is, is whether Sinn Féin, as the polls suggest, is likely become for the first time ever the largest party um, in the Northern Ireland Assembly, which would give them the right to nominate the first minister. Um, that would be quite a big symbolic moment um, in Northern Ireland politics. It wouldn't necessarily change that much in terms of practical government politics and, and, and actually how government operates, because the unionist and nationalist parties will still have to work together in coalition. That's the essence of the of the power sharing devolution settlement in, in Northern Ireland. Um, but it could be nonetheless quite uh, symbolically significant, I think, if, if we have a Sinn Féin first minister for the first time ever. And what, what are the implications of that, that last point for, for the island of Ireland as a whole? Everton, I think people are going to start talking about, you know, does this mean that a, a also called on a, a referendum on, on Irish reunification is likely? Um, and, you know, it, it, it will signal that, uh, you know, people are, people are more willing to, to vote for, for Sinn Féin, whose priority is, of course, to hold a border poll. But I don't think in the short run that that means we're likely to see that happening um, for the first reason being that, as mentioned, Sinn Féin is not going to be a majority party. It's going to be working in coalition if assuming a government is formed in the first place, which isn't always that straightforward in Northern Ireland. But it'll, if, a, if, if a government is formed, it'll be in coalition with the DUP and other parties as well, um, which will constrain its, its ability to make progress. In addition, a border poll would only happen with the agreement of the Irish government, and it would only happen at a point when the UK government is, is persuaded that there is support for Irish reunification. Um, that's something that is set out actually in the in the Northern Ireland Act and Good Friday Agreement, that that's the point at which the UK government would be required to allow a referendum to take place. But I don't think we're at that point yet. 
Thanks for being with us, Akash. Let's ex- explore in more detail a subject that, if it doesn't dominate on the doorsteps on Thursday, will be front and centre in voters' minds by the next election, and that's the cost of living crisis. We're now joined for his podcast debut by Ollie Bartram, the newest member of our public finances team, and not too long ago, a civil servant in government. Hi, Ollie. Jim, so we had reports this week that the Prime Minister wants to see more government action on this. Is that pre-election spin, Prime Minister will panic, or some genuinely useful brainstorming? I'm, I'm a very cynical journalist. Um, <laughs> I, I'm cynical about a lot of stuff. And I look at that cabinet meeting, I just think it's complete spin. Um, not least because uh, someone told me that Stephen Barclay issued this order, I think a month or two ago, to cabinet ministers to come up with ways to cut the cost of living. So, I mean, there is obviously a process taking place. The idea that Boris Johnson suddenly initiated it on Tuesday, I'm a bit sceptical about. And when you look at the, the, the sort of level of um, ambition in these ideas, you know, they're constrained by the fact that they were told to come up with these ideas without spending any money, which is why you've got Grant Shapps offering uh, MOT tests every other year. Uh, rather than now, that saves, what, 25 quid a year. You've got um, people looking, the DIT being ordered to look at cutting uh, tariffs on food imports. And you know, these things kind of disintegrate as soon as you look at how they work in practice. So if, if you're a driver and you only do an MOT every two years, you'll basically end up with a car that functions less well and therefore you have to spend more on repairs and therefore you probably don't get a net saving. And likewise, if you start cutting tariffs on food imports, you get into all sorts of regulatory and bureaucratic issues, I think, with the WTO and that can backfire as well. None of these things are a silver bullet. And when you look at the financial scale of what people are facing, you take energy bills alone. Energy bills were about £1,300 for most families until April and are now going up to 2000 and are expected to go up to 2500 or thereabouts by the end of the year. That's an increase of £1,200. And you've already got Rishi Sunak's package worth £9 billion, but that only helps people to tune up, uh, I seem to remember from memory, 350 quid. They're nowhere near. They're going to have to massively ramp that up just to deal with energy bills. And then when you also look at other cost of living factors, such as food, bills have gone up by 5.9%. Mortgages could, for people on variable interest rates, go up by multiples of hundreds of pounds by the end of the year. They're going to have to drop this idea that you can address the cost of living without spending any money. I, I really do think that that's fantasy politics. And it may work in terms of uh, the local elections, but it's not going to work in financial terms by the end of the year. There's a separate question here, which is, <clears throat> has Keir Starmer been focusing too much on the party gate and not enough on the cost of living? And we had a whiff earlier this week of Lisa Nandia, shadow cabinet, saying they should be shifting more towards the cost of living. I think there are two reasons why they have... Pr- they, they, could, they, can, they can ride both these horses at the same time, I think. And I think the reason they're focusing more on party gate in recent weeks is, A, it's fresh. B, <clears throat> you might as well strike while the iron is hot and while people are being fined. And I think C, Labour has a very clear argument here, which is that the Tories were guilty of these parties and were caught and have been fined by the police. The Labour Party has not. Uh, even though various right-wing media want to 
try and revive this issue of Keir Starmer having a beer at a work event in Durham. So far, the Durham police are not actually reopening the inquiry until the point they do. That is a very black and white situation. Whereas the problem with the cost of living crisis is that any party can come up with a, a kind of menu of ways that they're going to address the cost of living crisis. Voters rightly are sceptical about whether anyone has a solution for that. And I think finally on cost of living, this is going to drag on not for hours or days or weeks. It's going to drag on for months or years. And therefore, we're going to see a lot more of this tax from Labour and alternative suggestions coming down the tracks. And therefore, I think it's fair enough for them to concentrate on Partygate for a bit. And how do you think Rishi Sunak's going to, going to respond? I mean, perhaps all that's been proven by these sorts of suggestions which have been uh, discussed this week is that they're never going to be enough, as you say. Yeah, I mean, it may, it may pain some free market conservatives, but if they want to win the next general election, they're going to have to come back in the summer with an absolute you know, bazooka of a solution to the energy bills. Whether it's for every single household in Britain or whether it's just for vulnerable households, they're going to have to come up with something which addresses what is a four-figure increase in bills for for most households. And if that requires them to do a load of borrowing, that might make Rishi Sunak nervous. I think Boris Johnson, who is more concerned with electoral success than fiscal probity, he will uh, be quite likely to be encouraging Sunak to do that. But, but that still doesn't resolve your food bills going up. It still doesn't resolve your petrol bills going up. And it still doesn't resolve your rents and your mortgage payments going up either. So, Ollie, the situation has been described as ministers having to look for cost of living measures that don't cost anything because there's no money left. You're not convinced? Well, no, um, not not entirely. I mean, as as we've just uh, heard from Jim, the, the prime minister has asked Cabinet to look for measures that don't cost anything. And this has sort of been the reason for this has been presented as, you know, the, the government's run up so much debt throughout uh the COVID crisis and 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 there's there's simply no money left to address the cost of living crisis. But that sort of interpretation that we've reached the limit of what we can spend and there's a sort of hard wall there in terms of expanding what we can do on the cost of living just doesn't hold. I mean, it's a political choice whether we want to spend any more money. The government certainly can borrow. Um, so to present it as something that literally cannot happen is quite misleading. Now, there is the issue of fiscal rules. Um, so this is sort of often invoked when you are, when the government is coming under pressure to uh, increase spending in between fiscal events, so in between budgets. But there are kind of two issues with that. The first is it may be justifiable to break fiscal rules in an emergency. Uh, uh, As we've discussed, we have many, many households facing a real crunch in terms of their real incomes, many entering absolute poverty, which is a very rare thing to happen. So you might think that there are certain situations in which you can break fiscal rules. Even if you don't think that, Tax receipts have actually been coming in a lot stronger recently than the OBR was expecting, even at the spring statement. So the Chancellor has received around six to seven billion pounds more than the OBR was expecting at the spring statement already. And that's likely to continue. Now, six to seven billion pounds would go a long way to addressing the cost of living crisis 
even on its own. Now, what he might be waiting for is the autumn, because as Jim said, the next sort of big hit to households will be October's rise in the energy price cap. Um, and this is sort of what Sunak indicated at the spring statement is things were, you know, too volatile to be doing anything hugely significant right now. And he was going to wait until the autumn. But fundamentally, there is space for him to borrow more if he wants to address this. Um, I think especially given the reaction to the spring statement where Gemma Tetlow, our own chief economist, as well as experts from the IFS and Resolution Foundation, criticised the policies announced there for not doing enough for those on lower incomes. So, Ollie, you've also been writing about uh, Russian gas and you, you've been talking there about the need for, for a government to do more to prepare for high prices and, and to prepare, I, I think, the public for higher prices and potentially supply problems we've seen this week. Uh, Russia starting to move um, uh, against Poland and, and Bulgaria on on because they it, it says because they refused its uh, uh, instruction to to pay for their gas in in rubles. Um, has the government done enough? I mean, the UK is not particularly vulnerable to physical supply shortages. Even if Russia completely cut off supply to Europe because the UK mostly gets its gas from its own sources, from Norway and from imports of liquefied natural gas from Qatar and uh, America. We don't directly rely on Russia and we probably wouldn't face blackouts. Good news. Now, that's, <laughs> that's certainly good news. Uh, the rest of Europe might not be so lucky. Um, if gas gets cut off to Europe, that will cause a huge rise in prices in Europe. And because the UK and EU energy markets are unavoidably integrated, we will see exactly the same price rises here. Now, we were talking earlier about bills going up from 1300 to 1900 in April to possibly 2500 in October. The price effect of disrupting Russian energy trade would blow even that 2500 out of the water. So the key things that the government needs to do are sort of plan to help households. Now, that could mean more sort of measures to support household finances, like we were talking about earlier. I mean, sort of the, the one that people suggest most often is making sure that benefits rise with inflation. Uh, that's not something that the Chancellor chose to do at Spring Statement, but could be quite quite helpful and well targeted. The other thing that was surprisingly missing from the UK's energy security strategy is measures to improve energy efficiency or reduce usage, because those can be done within the next year, unlike all of the plans for oil extraction and nuclear that were in the energy security strategy. Overall, the government hasn't really done much at all to address this sort of short-term risk. Um, the energy security strategy is a missed opportunity there and there's definitely a lot further that they could go. And that's it for another episode of Inside Briefing. Thank you so much to Ollie Bartram, Akash Pound, Georgina Wright and to Jim Picard. Thanks for being with us. And thank you all for listening at home. You can find all our podcasts at iTunes, Spotify and all major platforms and do leave us a review too. 
And don't forget to visit our website at www.instituteforgovernment.org.uk. There's a lot there on Partygate, which for the first time in a long time we didn't discuss today. That's not that much anyway. And lots from Ollie on gas, energy and the cost of living. And from Akash and his team on the local elections. Enjoy the bank holiday, everyone. Inside Briefing will be back next Friday, giving us all an extra 24 hours to add up Thursday night's election results and catch up on some sleep. See you then.